Hey, we're going to be in Isaiah 5 tonight, and so if you want to get a finger there, and then also turn to Matthew 7, Matthew chapter 7, we will start in the Matthew passage, Matthew 7, verse 15, Um, part of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, very famous teaching of Jesus, Um, so these will be familiar passages, familiar words, Um, starting in verse 15, it says, beware of false prophets. Who, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." By all outward appearances, these people would seem to be Christians. They're doing, it says they're prophesying in the name of Jesus. They're casting out demons in the name of Jesus, doing mighty works, probably healings, various things, all in the name of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say, you didn't do these things. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me. That's a sobering thought, um, that people who would appear to be part of the covenant community and would be doing marvelous things. I mean, we can't, we, the text says they were doing, essentially says they're doing these things. Um, for them not to be part of the covenant community is, is uh, shocking, really. Um, those are the kinds of things a lot of times that even as Christians, well, it's certainly what the world chases after. They're exciting, um, it's amazing. Um, But the point being that it's not always connected to the Lord, right? And he's not, apparently, that's not the kind of fruit that he's most concerned about or the kind of fruit that he's really looking for. It told us back in um, in verse 21 that those who are going to enter the kingdom of heaven are the ones who do my Father's will. Well, what's the will of the Father, you might ask? Good question. Um, It's really not that complicated, I don't think. In chapter 6, verse 29, John tells us, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent, that you believe in Jesus. Or in 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells us, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and how to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so even more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, if you want to write it down. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, you being made holy, your holification, um, the process that you're cooperating with of being set apart by God. That's what sanctification is. It's this process that's happening in us. And he goes on, he says, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, 
that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. So treating each other well, not stealing someone else's wife, essentially is what he's speaking of in that passage. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness, in that sanctification. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, you probably still have your finger in Matthew 7, right? Okay. Look again at verse 23. Matthew 27, verse, or yeah, chapter 27, verse 30, 23, where he says, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. When Jesus calls them workers of lawlessness. He's not saying they're people without rules necessarily, okay? Um, he's not saying that they don't have some, potentially even some moral code or, or uh code of conduct that they follow or anything else. It's a lack of respect for the things of God, just disregarding what God has called them to do, disregarding um, being actually being in opposition to God's character, being in opposition to not just his character, but the name, maybe perhaps carrying his name, calling themselves, um, they wouldn't have called themselves Christians, but in our day, calling ourselves Christians, but not living up to that standard, not living up to what God's calling us to be. Um, vainly carrying the name of God while being empty. Probably this is what the commandment is about of profaning the name of God, much more so than things we might speak with our mouth, although that's important too. We should never profane that which is holy. But it's more about this empty, deceitful, life that we are living that's empty, calling ourselves one thing and living another way, being lawless. Uh, this is a frightful thing, especially as a pastor sharing the gospel with people. Um, the, the, the burden, really, the responsibility to make sure that we, we share it in a way that people don't purchase fire insurance, that they don't think, well, I said a prayer when I was a kid, I said a prayer at camp. I, went, I drove a stake at the foot of the cross at camp one year. Um, these moments in our life, I can think back on probably eight or 10 such times in my own life as a, as a young man growing up and then walking away from the Lord every time and continuing to live my own way, continuing to, to live for me, not to live for him. Um, at what point was I saved? I have no idea in that history. What I do know is that there was a night when I was 36 when the Lord got a hold of me and said, wake up, you're an idiot. Uh, start following me. Through the voice of my dad, I actually said, you know, you know what you need to do. Pray, turn back to Jesus, start following him. I know I got converted that night because there was a change in my life, a real change. Had nothing to do with an altar call, had nothing to do with a church service, what it really had to do with was a, a person's voice. He just happened to be my dad. But it was a person's voice speaking truth into my life and me finally receiving it and submitting to it. And after that, I did what every person should do. I went and got baptized shortly after that first baptism they had available here. Um, so it's a really good thing for us to examine ourselves from time to time. Am I really, am I walking with the Lord? Or do I know this is just a facade? 
Do I know I'm just wearing a mask all the time? Uh, again, did I just purchase fire insurance thinking I'd get a free get out of hell card? Because that doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. We have to hear, believe, receive, and then we have to live according to his word. And that's, that's the result of a transformed life. If you don't have some kind of fruit in your life, you've not been transformed. Um, if you're asking yourself right now, am I really transformed? It's a good question to ask yourself from time to time, to examine your life, maybe talk to somebody else about it as well. It's also probably a pretty good indicator that you are. If you're dead set confident that, oh, absolutely, well, maybe you need to examine a little harder. Maybe. I'm not saying for sure, but um, yeah. So it's a good thing. Here's a good question. How many things would you be obligated to stow away into the closet if you invited me over to dinner or one of the other pastors? Or maybe if you knew Jesus was coming to dinner. Well, let me let you in on a little secret. Jesus is at your house every night. And he knows what happens in the daylight. He knows what happens in the darkness. He knows what happens in our thought life, which is even scarier, right? Um, But he still loves us. He still forgives and draws in those who uh, are submitting to him, committing to him. Uh, So how does this connect to Isaiah? Well, let's turn there and find out. Isaiah 5. So you might recall just a really brief overview that the first, I'm not sure we've actually said this, but the first five chapters of Isaiah are really our introduction to the whole rest of the book. Um, Chapter 1, God's laying out, it's this courtroom scene, right? And he brings charges against Israel and he calls all of creation to bear witness uh, on, you know, look, look at what they've done. Look at, at, um, at their rebellion. Um, and then, uh, so he lays out all his charges. And you remember what those three primary charges were? It's not the statements we did last week. Do you, but do you remember what the three things are that God held against Israel? Primary things. Idolatry. Um, ceremonial ritualism and a lack of social justice. So not taking care of people within their culture, taking advantage of each other, in fact, the way that they treated each other. So those are the three charges that he brings against them in chapter one, or primarily the three charges. And then chapters two through four, if you remember, it begins and it ends with this picture of future glory, this hopeful future that awaits for, um, for all of God's people all those that are called by his name. Um, And sandwiched in between those two hopeful pictures are the realities of their sinfulness, what they really are like, their real character, and the judgment that comes because of that character. Now, it's kind of like a, you know what a compliment compliment sandwich is? Where you got a compliment, critique, compliment. It's a lot like that, except this is a lot more important because the consequences are actually death and destruction. Um, so it's more serious, but it, it's that kind of picture. You've got this hopeful future, the realities of what's happening, happening judgment coming because of it, and then another, another shot of hopefulness. So that's a brief recap where we've been. Moving into chapter 5, uh, well, before we get that, we're all familiar with parables, right? A par- there's a lot of parables in the New Testament. Parables are simply stories that are designed to expose uh, a moral or a spiritual truth, usually when it's in the Bible. Um, The word parable means to cast alongside. So it's a story that's happening over here, and then there's usually some kind of catch line or catch phrase that that 
sucks you in and draws you right into the midst of the story, making you realize that it's talking about me. <laughs> I didn't realize that, but it's talking about me. Um, so these are all through the, the New Testament. Jesus uses them quite frequently, but they're not exclusive to him. They're a very uh, effective way to teach. Um, we have parables in our own day. Um, you may not realize it, but there's, there's one fairly well-known. I, I know we've talked about it at Trail before. I don't think I ever have, but um, the, the story of the, the blind men and the elephant. Are you guys familiar with that? No? Oh, well, okay. I thought this would be repeat, but well, I think I've got enough time we can go a little bit more detail. So here's the story is actually it comes, um, well, let me just read it. The parable of the elephant and the blind man, it's, it's generally a well-known story, and it tends to resonate really well in cultures that are concerned with multi-diversity or diversity, like America, in particular the West, diversity. Um, where multiple perspectives are promoted. So the story actually originated in India, um, and it's been used in uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, Sufi context, which is another Indian uh, in, uh, religion in India. Um, there's a, the most common version in the West comes out of Lillian Quigley's children's book, which is about six blind men who visit the Raja, Raja, Raja's palace, who's the king. Okay, represents the king, the Rajah's palace, and they encounter this elephant. So six blind men, this is uh, Greg Kokel's version, actually, but he says, the first blind man, blind man put out his hand and he touches the side of the elephant. How smooth, he said, an elephant is like a wall. The second blind man put out his hand and he touched the trunk of the elephant. And he said, how round, an elephant is like a snake. The third blind man put out his hand and he touched the tusk of the elephant. How sharp, he said, an elephant is like a spear. The fourth blind man put out his hand and he touched the leg of the elephant. And he said, how tall, the elephant is, it's like a tree. The fifth man reached out his hand and touched the ear of the elephant. And he said, how wide, it's like a fan. An elephant is like a fan. The sixth blind man put out his hand and he touched the tail of the elephant. How thin, he said, an elephant is like a rope. An argument ensues between each of the blind men thinking that they're the one who has the right answer about what the elephant is, about who's correct. And, and in this, the Rajah wakes, uh, he's, a, he's awakened by the commotion and he calls out from the balcony. He says, hey, the elephant's a big animal. Each man touched only one part. You must put all the parts together to find out what the elephant actually is, what it's like. So enlightened by the Rajah's wisdom, the blind men reached agreement. Each one of us knows only a part. To find out the whole truth, we've got to put all of the parts together. All of our voices matter. We've got to all come to a conclusion together in order to discover what the elephant really is. So the moral of the story goes something like this. Uh, we all have different experiences. Therefore, our perspectives are different. So whenever we find ourselves with odds at, with other people or at odds with other people, we need to be humble. We need to recognize our limitations or the limitations of our knowledge. We need to recognize our need for other perspectives and trust that others may grasp truths that we can't grasp or that we don't grasp. And there's some truth in that, right? I mean, we all do have a different perspective about things and our opinions are important to a certain degree um, about some things more so than others. 
But when you apply this to religion, which is what our culture does, or what the uh, purveyors of this story do, um, the story says that no one has the comprehensive vision of the truth. We need all the religions of the world if we're going to grasp the truth of spir about spiritual reality. So the par parable of the blind man and the elephant, uh, it's very memorable in its delivery, the message that it brings, uh, and, it, and it's very memorable because it's actually, it's promoting humility, at least on the surface, sounds like it is. Um, but as an explanation for why no religion or perspective can claim to be right and all the others wrong, it backfires. And there are more than these two ways, but I want to, you to take note of two ways that it backfires, two ways that it's, that it's wrong. It promotes humility while demonstrating arrogance. Well, how does that happen, you might say? Well, isn't the king also blind? I mean, in the story, the elephant represents God, but the king is setting, him outside, setting himself outside of the story, and he's got a fuller perspective than the rest of humanity, ostensibly, which is the six blind men. They represent humanity. Uh, so whoever is telling the story is actually setting themselves up in a higher moral position than all the other people involved. So while it espouses this humility of receiving other perspectives, it's actually promoting its own perspective as the ultimate perspective. Um, so that's one fallacy that exists here. Tim Keller sums up the, con the contradiction in this this way. He says, how could you know that each blind man only sees part of the elephant unless you claim to be able to see the whole elephant, which is what the Rajah did? How could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have the superior, comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality you just claimed that none of the religions have. Uh, notice, uh, oh, second point. Um, we are all indeed blind, but what if the elephant speaks? What if the elephant speaks? Um, in other words, from a religious perspective, what if God reveals himself? and all those other opinions don't really matter, do they? <laughs> We're hearing it directly from God, directly from the elephant in this story. Um, notice that the story ends with the Rajah, who can see, explaining the reality of that, the elephant. The blind men need revelation in order to receive the truth. Well, we need revelation from God, not from another blind man. Uh, especially another blind fellow who refuses to acknowledge his own blindness, who's separating himself and putting himself in a higher position. Revelation changes everything. The reason the blind man and the elephant doesn't work in a, as an illustration of the various religions um, also gets pointed out by, by the three Abrahamic faiths that would say that, um, who would each say that the elephant as a metaphor for God can and in fact has spoken. That's the claim of Christianity, the claim of Islam, and the claim of Judaism. Um, the claim of Christianity says that man doesn't learn about God by groping. Instead, he discovers God through God's own self-disclosure. He's not passive and silent. God is not, leaving us to guess about his nature. God tells us what he is like and what he wants. If God speaks, this changes everything. All contrary opinions are silenced. All conjectures are put to rest. God has made himself known, giving us a standard by which to measure all other religious claims. The parable of the blind man doesn't even take this possibility into account. Um, and yet again, all three of the world's great religions 
Christianity, Judaism, and Islam make this claim. So a modern day parable. There also were parables in um, the Old Testament. So let's shift back to the eighth century BCE. Uh, It's a prosperous time in Israel. In fact, they're a little bit fat and sassy in the land. They're feeling good about life in general. Uh, Things are going well. They have the temple. It's a period of relative peace because Assyria in the north is busy with their own affairs and Egypt in the south has got their own sets of problems as well. So they're leaving Israel alone, essentially. Um, So the temple is doing well. The economy is booming. And life is good in Israel and Judah, at least according to the people. Um, And yet these three things crop up again, the idolatry, lack of justice, and social justice in particular, and trusting in religious ceremonialism or superstitious religion. Um, And you will see all three of these at at one level or another through the passages tonight. So the Old Testament also uses parables, as I said earlier. What's the, anybody got an idea what the most famous parable in the Old Testament is, or probably the most well-known? Nobody? No? No? The beloved you, E-W-E-U. David, King David and Nathan, when Nathan comes and tells him a story about this beloved you, that this is the only animal that the man had and the, the, his neighbor, the, the rich guy who had all kinds of cattle and all kinds of lambs came and stole it from him. And then what did Nathan say? David, you're the man. And the conviction, remember, that hit David. And that story, Second Samuel, um, you want to read it at some point. So the Old Testament also, uh, another fairly well-known parable in the Old Testament is the one we're looking at tonight, Isaiah 5, the worthless vineyard or the Lord's vineyard. Um, The Lord uh, had a vineyard that he worked. He worked hard to prepare it. Um, He found good soil. He cleared out all the rocks. He built a hedge of protection around it. Uh, He even built watchtowers and planted choice vines, but it produced worthless fruit. Um, so he's, he's going to plow it under, remove the protective bar- barrier, let the wild animals come back in and ravage it. But he's not going to let it completely die. So this is essentially the story of Isaiah 5, or the, the story that's being told here. Let's read through and make some comments as we go along. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And this doesn't sound like a ton of work to us, but this is about a two-year process. You find a section of land, it's got the right light exposure, you go and you clear it, it's sandstone there, so it's very fertile, fertile soil, but it, a lot of rocks crop up, kind of like Oregon, right? You'd go take all the rocks out and the next year there's a bunch of rocks back in it. Um, same thing there. And grapes grow, even to this day, grapes grow, grow really well in Israel. Um, so he goes and you clear the rocks and what do you do with the rocks you take out? Well, you build a fence, you build a hedge of protection around your vineyard. In fact, you even build watchtowers where you can put guards, um, post guards there to protect it. So, so the, the story that he's sharing here, this parable, 
would have been very familiar to the people hearing it. And they would have been like, yeah, right on. You cleared the land. You found a good place. You took, built the fence like you should. Good job. Um, and verse 3, and he says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done, uh, that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it wield wild grapes? I think back, you kind of picture in this scene, if you think back to chapter 1, verse 18, when God said, come, let us reason together. Um, you can almost, you can feel this personal conversation happening here in this uh, parable. God is like, he's like, come on, what else could I do? Or the, the vine dresser in the parable here is, what else could I do? I did everything right. I cleared it. I got the choicest vines to plant. Uh, I should have, there should have been a large, well, I put in wine vats. This is a process too. It's It's a big system, like there's uh, a vat up here and usually a drain that comes down to a second vat. So again, this is a two-year, like he's representing a two-year process here in, in uh, two verses. Um, so all this work and effort, and it yields wild grapes. So he's saying to the men of Judah, you be the judge. Did everything I should have. And they'd have been going, yeah, you did it just like, that's how, just how I would have done it. It's just how we do it across the, you know, the other side of the valley. That's how we do it over there too. Um, So you can hear the people because this is a story being told, right? You can, they're, being, they're entering into the story. They're acknowledging that he's done everything he should have done, everything that he could do. And in verse 5, it says, Now uh, I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds and they will not rain upon it. And they're going, yeah, tear it down, it's worthless. It should have grown grapes for you. Tear it down, get rid of that thing. And the people hearing this story, they'd have, they'd have been, yes, you're right, do what you need to do. Uh, and he's talking about he's going to remove the hedge. He's going to remove this barrier of protection and allow the wild beasts, the animals to come back in, the weeds to come back in and take over. And, and uh, you know, the grapes are going to get, or the, the grape vines are going to get choked up by, the, um, by nature taking its course, essentially. And then he drops the bomb here. Um, you remember how worked up David got in the other parable that I was talking about? I mean, he really got angry at this rich man who had taken advantage of, of, uh, of the poor farmer who had just one ewe that he loved. Same kind of idea here. They're getting worked up and they're mad at the, why didn't this work? And then the storyteller says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Just like saying, David, it's you. You are the man. House of Israel, you are the man. You're the one I'm speaking of. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. You are the choice vines that I planted. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. The place where there should have been just justice and righteousness in God's in God's chosen land amongst his chosen people. And there's not, there's outcry, bloodshed, injustice at every turn. There's a little bit of wordplay going on here. It doesn't come across great in English, but uh, the words for justice and bloodshed sound very similar. So as you're hearing this story, you'd almost be expecting to hear justice and, and more justice or justice and righteousness, justice and something else good. Um, but it's not. It's this, it's this contrast between justice and bloodshed and righteousness and an outcry. How shocking when you're expecting justice and in its place you find more violence, more evil. 
Uh, there are five specific behaviors in the next few verses, 8 through 24, that are condemned. Um, and they're all introduced with this word, woe, which to us is like, that's an archaic word. What does that mean? Um, it's old school, right? Well, it is, but it's a really good old school word. It points forward toward coming doom or death. Uh, it's a word that was often associated with funerals, speaking of sorrow, regret, anger, death lies ahead, essentially. Um, and it's all the more tragic because it was all unnecessary. They didn't have to experience this. Repent and turn. Uh, so the woe describes the sins of the people in relation to the lives they were called to live in the covenant of Mount Sinai. Um, but these are their sins that get exposed here. Greed, self-indulgence, cynicism, moral perversion, and social injustice. So verses 8 through 10 speaks directly at greed. He says, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. It doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense to us always, but it's this idea of, listen, I can't have enough land. I've got to, I, I, I can't have anybody living next to me. I'm going to add another field next, just, just one more field next to the edge of my property. And then just one more field next to the edge of my property. And where does that stop? I mean, it just, it doesn't. There's no, there's no satisfying this desire um, and joining house to house. So absorbing these houses. One of the things that Israel forgot was that the land was all God's. He'd given it to them for them to be uh, the, the caretakers of his land. And now here he's talking about this injustice of the rich and the wealthy and the culture buying up everything they can, um, gathering up all the land, which was a huge sin against God for the very reason that he had granted the land to him. And in fact, he did everything he could to make sure that the land a land plot stayed within the family, right? Within the family that it was originally given to, to the point that the year of jubilation, every, or jubilee, every 50 years, any debt that was owed uh, was forgiven, right? So that if you had lost your land or the family had lost their land, they'd get it back. I think that's a great rule we should implement here. Wipe out all debt every 50 years. Um, so an egregious sin here and um, just taking severe advantage. Greed in its worst uh, in its just exposed in its worst way. And keep in mind that greed isn't always just rich people. Um, in fact, many rich people aren't greedy at all. They're very generous, not all. I mean, there are greedy rich people too, but there's also very greedy poor people, um, people who don't have much, but anything they do get, it's like, that's mine, you cannot have it. There are also very generous people who don't have much that give you the shirt off their back if they can. So, so it's not about how much wealth you have, it's a heart condition, like, pretty much everything else that affects us, right? Uh, verse nine, the Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For 10 acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. So this is the judgment that's coming because of their greed. All these houses are going to be desolate. They're going to be empty, large, beautiful ones. All the places that, that where the rich people once lived and dwelt. Um, and they won't yield any. There will be no fruit coming off of them. A bath is not very much uh, wine, and a homer of seed is not, or an ephah is not much seed. So very, they're small portions. That's what I was talking about. 
Verses 11 through 17, um, the sin here is self-indulgence or hedonism, living for oneself no matter what. Um, And verse 11 says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wines at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of his hands. They're more concerned with party-hardy than anything, any of the deeds of the Lord or anything that he's got going on. Um, they're early to rise, but they're immediately chasing after their own pleasure. And it's talking about alcohol here, but that's not the only, not the only concern, right? Um, it could be anything. We've, we've created, in our culture, we've created all kinds of things that, that uh, we think bring pleasure, um, replacing alcohol. So, and, and also keep in mind, the Bible doesn't prohibit alcohol. It just prohibits self-medicating with alcohol. It prohibits drunkenness, um, abuse, essentially. Um, but it, it, it's this idea that uh, whatever makes you feel good, do it. And that's what these people are concerned with that he's speaking to. Verse 13, so the judgment for this. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. So the vast majority of them are parched with this thirst. We, we all have a thirst for something that we don't always know what it is. It's actually this emptiness, um, this longing for God oftentimes. And we have the source of life available and and. Presuming we know this on a Wednesday night, if you're here on a Wednesday night, you're probably aware of this and, and have submitted your life to the Lord, probably. Um, so we know that this thirst we have is satisfied by God, through God. But so often, people in our culture, maybe you're, maybe us once in a while, we're, we're trying to satisfy this thirst with salt water. And what happens? I mean, salt water kills you, right? It, it can't quench your thirst. Um, so with the wrong kind of water. Verse 14, Therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. So the picture here is that Israel, the people, the men and the people there, they've been opening their mouth and you get a picture of, of like birds being fed. Their mom comes back into the nest and their mouths are wide open and they just, they can't get enough, right? The little birds when their moms are feeding them. This is the picture of the people in Israel. They they're just, they're not able to get enough. They can't satisfy this craving, this hunger. They just need more and more and more and more. Uh, and God says, because of that Sheol, the abode of the dead is going to open its mouth and devour, devour. And it continues to open its mouth wider and, and wider to devour. Verse 15, man is humbled and each one is brought low and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. So the picture here is is that the Lord is going to be exalted in justice because he's going to bring judgment upon Israel. Um, and the result of that is that the lambs who the rich people used to eat, those lambs are not going to be grazing in their backyards, eating the grass that they used to mow and the nice manicured uh, front yard that they used to have. The, the lambs are going to be there enjoying that rather than the people. 
Amen, nomads, so wanderers are gonna eat among the ruins of the rich. Verses 18 and 19, the next sin here is cynicism or rebellion. It says, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who, who draw sin as with cart ropes. So they're dragging, the picture here is they're like dragging this sin along with them. And they say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. It's kind of an odd picture here, but is there, they're, they're almost bragging about their sin, bringing it along with them, showing everybody. It's like, God doesn't exist. If God existed, why hasn't he judged me for this? And then they're multiplying and the next verses are gonna multiply this and they're doing even worse sins because they've just completely turned away from God. Um, God hasn't killed me yet. He doesn't care about what I'm doing. Well, we're all one breath away from meeting our maker, right? And he does care about what we're doing. He cares about how we live our lives. Um, whether some miraculous thing like the rapture happens in our lifetime, if the end's really coming and it happens in our lifetime, great. Uh, or, you know, within, I'm going to be a little generous here, within the next 60 years, uh, we're all going to go to be with the Lord. Some of us, that's being really generous, I know. Some of us, it might be 10, might be tomorrow. Who knows? Not wishing that upon anybody. Um, none of us know the, the days that we have left before we're standing, even as Christians, standing before the Lord, giving an account of our lives. We won't be judged for what we've done, but we will give an account for everything we've done. Um, what that's going to look like, I don't exactly know. But Jesus has received the judgment for those things. We'll still give an account. And for the things that were good and righteous, we get some kind of reward. Um, so I want to do more things that are good and righteous because I want jewels in my crown. A lot of explaining. Actually, I'm not sure it's one particular verse. I was trying to find it earlier and ran into several that kind of, they, they, uh, they share this idea which goes along with this cynicism of, of uh, you know, God's not going to judge what we're doing. It's the idea. Um, is, is the concept is don't mistake God's patience for a lack of caring, right? Don't mistake his patience. Don't mistake the fact that he's put up with you for this long to mean that it's okay that you're doing what you're doing. Um, he wants us to live righteous, holy lives, that sanctification process. Verses 20 through 21, uh, moral perversion is the sin here. Um, it says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What new insanity is this? Uh, what kind of culture would celebrate evil things and draw other people in to uh, applaud them for doing the same things? All the culture we live in, it would seem. I mean, the insanity we see around us, things that are called good. You want to get in, in a lot of trouble on the internet or in general, perhaps, or hear a lot of flack on the internet, is just, just call out the immorality in, in our country. Um, but Christian friend, we need to be standing up in a calm, loving manner and say, no, you know what? That's not right. That's backwards. It goes against God's standard. Um, it goes against the standards of nature. And I, and I refuse to call it okay. Listen to how one author puts this about moral perversion. He says, the fourth woe, the one we're talking about here, verses 20 and 21, 
um, takes the situation one step further. Now it's not merely daring God to condemn sin. Rather, it is declaring that there's no such thing as sin. That in fact, what was previously declared to be wrong, by God presumably, is actually right. And that what has been considered right is actually wrong. Such persons have completely dismissed God from the picture. They are, why, they are so wise that they can make up their own morality. Oddly enough, this new morality takes the shape of direct opposition to what had been God's standards. It's not a matter of simply picking and choosing, but a specific controversion of what had been declared right and wrong. This suggests that what is going on is not merely asserting one's right to choose one's own moral convention, but it's rather a revolt against any moral authority at all. Does that sound familiar at all? Yeah. Verse 21, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own eyesight. Verses 22 and 24, speaking of the sin of social injustice, says, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. It's like, I can drink that guy under the table. If this is, where I'm, this is what I'm proud of and this is what I'm bragging about, uh, this is the wrong attitude. <laughs> it's, it's, not what, it's not what I'm doing there. It's what life am I living the next day? Am I standing up for justice? Am I willing to stand up for justice? Um, or are my heroes those who are good at drinking or those who are good at mixing a drink? essentially what he's asking or saying. And then for a bribe, they, uh, they allow injustice within the court system and deprive the innocent of their right. Verse 24, therefore, as the tongue of, of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will go up like dust for they've rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the, middle of the, in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The judgment is continuing, and it's continuing, and it's continuing. Um, they should have expected no less. Again, this is... This is God's people in God's land, and there's nothing but injustice and, and bloodshed and outcry. Of course, they're going to be burned up like stubble. So the next few verses, uh, 26 through 30, are the results that come. And uh, just pointing towards the, the captivities that happen or the invasions that happen, Assyria coming for the northern tribes and Babylon later on coming for, the, for Judah and Israel or Judah and uh, Jerusalem. And it says, he will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. So it's like God goes, hey, I'm moving these guys from over here. They're coming to judge you. So it's not because of how great they are. It's not because of how great Assyria was. They were a powerful nation and, and uh, they were, they were terrible people, though, and God used them to judge Israel. Um, just like he used Babylon to judge Judah. Uh, 
So they didn't come of their own accord. It was more like God puts this hook in their mouth and draws them down to do his bidding, to actually bring judgment against his people. Um, and they came quickly. Uh, verse 27 speaks of their efficiency. It says, none is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. These guys are professionals. They're coming and they mean business and they're going to take care of business. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows are bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint and their wheels like the whirlwind. That's like no army Israel has ever seen. And they're coming their roaring, roaring is like a lion. Like young lions, they roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off, and no one can rescue them. They will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. This all happened in 722, so probably 20, 20 years after, uh, 18 to 20 years after um, Isaiah is, is speaking this to the people. Assyria comes in, captures uh, uh, Samaria or the northern tribes, um, scatters them throughout their lands, takes them out of their land and scatters them throughout uh, their own their own, their their areas of conquest. Um, and then in 586, similarly, the uh, deportation, the final deportation to Babylon. So the land is left in despair and darkness. Just like the vineyard, where the hedge of protection has been taken down, removed, uh, and the wild animals, the wild beasts have been allowed to come in and take it over. And as they left, then just ruin is left. Listen, friends, this whole section, it could just as easily be a parable for our day, for the entire world. God has spoken. The parable that is so prevalent in our culture and our society, the, the elephants and the, the elephant and the blind man, um, God has spoken. He's revealed himself to us through his son. And he's given us enough information that we should not be producing wild grapes. We should actually be producing good fruit in our lives. And he's also warned us that judgment's coming. As I said, each one of us is, is who knows how far away from, from meeting him face to face. So what's the solution? Well, live in God's will. Believe in the one in whom believe in the one whom he sent, Jesus. Surrender to him and cooperate with the sanctifying work that the Holy Spirit's doing in your life. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are uh, we're thankful for your word, even, even uh, hard passages like this that speak of, of uh, so much sin and rebellion, and, um, and yet so many, so many of these things that were written uh, 2,800 years ago are, uh, we recognize them. Lord, I mean, they seem familiar to us for various reasons. Familiar because we see them in our own culture, Sometimes we see them in our own lives, Lord. Please forgive us for that. Uh, we, we pray as your people that we will stand up and be righteous and stand for justice and stand for those things that are right, living lives that um, reveal your character, Lord, to our friends, to our families, to the world. A dead and dying world needs to see the hope that you offer. Help our lives to be a reflection of that, Lord, that, that we would live the way you've called us to live. 
um, cooperating with the Spirit, sharing our testimony with others, sharing about the good things that you have done and are doing, um, and seeing seeing the, the ways that you want us to live, not as restrictions, but as actually entering into good, entering into the way you designed us to be. Um, you didn't design us for independence and isolation and and for glory on our own to make a name for ourselves. That's that's you. You are the one who deserves glory. And it's in you where we find our identity, Lord. So help us to live into that reality. We are grateful for your word, for the warnings that we see there, for the hope that we see there. Uh, and I pray, Lord, that you just you press in uh, upon us these realities and how much you love us and really how simple a relationship is with you. Um, loving you, loving each other, and cooperating with your spirit. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.